بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala We seek blessings in the Prophet, peace be upon him Continuing the Shahab Ahmad We are on page uh, 25 And the section, um, the paragraph that begins Already nearly a century Already nearly a century before Rumi and Ibn Arabi And in another milieu The Baghdadi Hanbali preacher Abu al-Faraj Ibn al-Jawzi who, as a professional matter, competed in the marketplace of ideas for the hearts and minds of the citizens of the greatest city in the Islamic world, invoked his learned forebear, the master jurist Ibn Aqil, in excoriation of his rivals, namely those Sufis who claimed that the higher real truth, al-Haqiqah, and the revealed law, al-Sharia, were not the same. The Sufis turned the law into a name. Perhaps nowhere is this paradox expressed more pithily and in a more revealing tone of familiarity than in the tart exchange between God and the celebrated Sufi Abu Yazid al-Bistami, reported by Ibn Arabi in his Magisterium, the Meccan Revelations. Abu Yazid said to God the Truth, If people knew about you as I know, they would not worship you. God the Truth Most High retorted, O oh, Abu Yazid, if they knew about you as I know, they would pelt you with stones. How is this Islamic? Mm -hmm. so, so we have a couple of issues here. One, you have Abu Yazid who is talking to God, okay, which is already uh, a big question mark. And then on top of that, look at what Abu Yazid is saying about God. If people knew about you as I know, they would not worship you. Right? What does that mean? Or what could that mean? Could mean uh, that... Like, I think our natural tendency is to, th is to say that there's something inappropriate, um, but it could be that, okay, you are so merciful mm -hmm. and so full of love that people would not feel like they need to worship you. Oh, right? wow. Yeah. Um, and then the response from, from, from God, the truth, the Most High, says, oh, well, we use it as they know you as I know you. They pelt you with stones, right? I mean, they know what you're, what's going on inside you. Right. You know. um, so yeah, so that's the, the second question. The second question is that we have all these thoughts and practices from the Sufis. Uh, how is that uh, Islamic? Now, it's not saying, um, you know, try to prove that this is Islamic. It's basically saying how. Mm -hmm. That's the emphasis here. Like, uh, what is it that makes this in particular Islamic? Okay, let's go to the third one, uh, the third question. The third question proceeds from the first two. Two of the most socially pervasive and consequential thought paradigms in the history of societies of Muslims are the philosophy of illumination of Shahab al-Din al-Shuhawardi and the unity of existence of the Akbarian school of the most influential Sufi in history, the Sheikh Akbar, Muhayy al-Din ibn Arabi, born in Andalusia in 1165, died in Syria in 1240, both are cross-inflections of Abyssinian philosophy and of Sufism. Both are grounded in a hierarchical vision of the cosmos and thus in a hierarchical vision of humankind. Both blur in their respective emanationist, em emanationist iterations of the relationship between the divinity and the material world, the boundary between divine transcendence and divine immanence, and thereby flirt incorrigibly with pantheism and relativism. Are these Islamic ideas? Okay, so... So this idea of unity of existence is very controversial. Wahdat al-wujud. And, and the idea is that you can reach such a state 
such a high state of spirituality that you become one with God. And then this gets responded to about 500 years later, 600 years later, with a, a different um, idea called Shahadat al-Wujud, which is essentially the witnessing of the existence. So the idea of Wahdat al-Wujud is you become one with God. Mm-hmm. Shahadat al-Wujud is that you, there is nothing else that you could see or detect but God. In the first one, doesn't that imply that like you just pretty much cease to exist when you become one with God? Um, that's that's um, uh, in both of the schools you find this idea of ceasing to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, the controversial aspect of it is that, um, like you still seem to have some sort of existence in God, with God, what have you, mm-hmm. right? And the second one uh, has much more emphasis on ceasing to exist, right? Okay. Um, where it's all you have is the ability to witness. And the second one's not as controversial. second one is far less controversial. Even though the first one's controversial, it's kind of merciful in a way that, like, you're still there to remain and, like, en- like enjoy God's presence than mm-hmm. just, like, eliminating yourself. Yeah, yeah, totally. And there's one other point here that I wanted to discuss. Um, okay, we'll come back to this. Um, keep on. The basic concept of illuminationist philosophy is that all being is the emanation of light from the divine light, with the result that there is no real distinction in the essence of all beings, only in their degree of illumination with divine light. Effectively, then, God is in all things to a lesser or greater degree. The fundamental idea of Akbarian philosophy is that all things are the manifestations by emanation of the existence of God, a typical Ibn al Ibn Arabi's statement is, Whenever I said creation, its creator said, There is nothing there except me. Creation is real truth, and the essence archetype of creation is its creator. This makes it a very subtle operation to try to extricate God from all existing things, and has also the effect of rendering all things true in the degree that they are manifestations of God. The potential pantheism and relativism of these concepts are encapsulated in the notorious passage from Ibn Arabi's celebrated Summa, the rhinestone, the ringstones of wisdom. You know, like every time I used to see that title, uh, I kept reading the ringtones of wisdom, <laughs> and that shows you how yeah. I'm rhinestones. Yeah. <laughs> In which the greatest sheikh addresses the refusal of the people of the Prophet no to abandon their idols, as mentioned in Quran. Yeah, what's reading Seventy-one twenty-three no. Should I continue? Yeah. If they had rejected those gods or idols, that they would have been ignorant of God the truth, al-Haq, in the measure that they rejected them. For in every object of worship there is an aspect of God the truth, which one who knows him knows, and one who does not know him does not know. In regard to the Mohammedans, there came the verse of the Quran, your Lord determined that you will not worship other than he, meaning he established. The one who possesses knowledge knows who is worshipped, and which form he manifests so as to be worshipped. So nothing other than God is worshipped in every object of worship. You want to try to translate that, 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 that quote? Okay. Yeah. I don't know if I'm interpreting it right, mm-hmm. but almost that going through like the idol worship or the rejection of that was a, a lesson or gave them 
like the experience to be able to see mm-hmm. how like real and magnificent God truly is. <laughs> so, 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 when you are worshiping something, mm-hmm. um, he is saying you are effectively worshiping God, just the wrong way. And and when you shift from like the idol to worshiping God, then just like what just like what you said, um, then you can better appreciate God. But the point he's making is that yeah, you're always in worship of God. Um, it just may be misdirected. Mm. And so that gets controversial because then it sounds like he's saying it's okay to worship idols. That's not what he's saying. Yeah. He's saying that you and your being, you are always worshiping God. Um, but you may be turning to God in the wrong place. So if Allah created everything, you're always connecting to his creation. Um, but, uh, you know, you are still kind of diverting yourself a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know? And so, so what is the controversy of a lot of these things? It's because they're addressing the most sacred matters, which is, you know, who or what or how is, is God? And then what is worship, mm-hmm. right? And, and so anytime anyone dabbles into Ibadah, worship, then you're definitely going to have a lot of pushback. So even the, uh, the, the controversies over having a woman lead a co-ed mm-hmm. uh, prayer, a co-ed juma, um, the first part of the controversy is that people are messing with, with prayer, right? If this issue was addressed in a hundred thousand different other ways, you know, uh, put more women in leadership of mosques, um, you know, have more, um, you know, better spaces for, for women, um, um, there would be far less controversy, mm-hmm. right? Um, the problem is that in our era, um, we focus a lot on symbols. Yeah. And so it's not just the fact of a woman leading prayer, it's the symbol of a woman leading prayer. Mm-hmm. And, and I've made a convers- uh, comment in other discussions that it's not merely a woman, it's a black American woman, mm-hmm. right? That also becomes part of the symbol. In contrast to someone like a Hamza Yusuf, who's a white man, right? Mm-hmm. Who is so, so uh, uh, revered. Uh, but like, for example, like, you know, my sister, she's the Amira of her masjid, you know? Oh, sure. And, and um, uh, I'm sure her gender was part of uh, the opposition to her, and I'm sure her gender was part of the support to her. What does that mean, Amira of a masjid? So essentially, she's the president of the masjid. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, uh, like she called me up asking, you know, for advice on it, and I didn't really care about the fact that, you know, she's a woman as part of the issues. Mm-hmm. Part of her view is that a woman should be, like, in these positions, and, I mean, that wasn't as important to me as, or I get the press person in in, uh, in that space, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, uh, I said, go for it. And, but from a symbolic perspective, it can become important, especially, for example, let's say you're someone growing up, mm-hmm. and society tells you, more than we realize what you can accomplish, mm-hmm. right? So prior to Obama, society is basically, it doesn't have any major political figures that are black American mm-hmm. and embraced by the black American community. 
Um, and, and so when you're a kid growing up, uh, unintentionally or intentionally, that becomes a glass ceiling for you. Yeah. Right? Um, and so, so this is not to say symbols are not important. Mm-hmm. Were you gonna say something? No, it's just a question like, do you think that that's like something newer or like specific to our culture here, mm-hmm. or it's always been the case? Well, I think the idea of symbols have always been the case, mm-hmm. um, but I think the degree to which they are important today, I'm suspecting, is unprecedented because. Mm-hmm. You know, because of this, you know, dominance of media, right? That you're always seeing a screen. And when you're looking at anything on a screen, more than we realize it, it does become a symbol of something. And there's, like, no room for nuance Mm -hmm. or, like, details. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, symbols have uh, definitely always been there. um, But uh, there's uh, much more emphasis on it today, especially in terms of how it forms a person. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even in the past, like, why are the churches in Europe so gigantic? It's basically to give you the impression of, you know, the greatness of God mm-hmm. and your smallness, right? And that, you can say, is taking something symbolic and making it coercive, Yeah. right? And, and so I'm suggesting everything on media is exactly the same thing, mm. right? So I still haven't seen the Aziz Ansari uh, Islam episode. Um, you know, I saw. Uh, How was it? Is it good? I loved the whole second season. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, think I saw the first season, but I haven't seen any of the second season. Second season is better, in my opinion. Um, I I didn't dislike the episode, but I think like a Muslim watching it, or like specifically like a Desi or ch- child of immigrant Muslim who's watching it is going to get some of the nuance that mm. I feel like white audiences are not, like, I think their interpretation is going to be, like, religion's just dumb. Mm, and, like, it's cool and all Muslims aren't terrorists, but, like, mm. like parents who have practices that they, they maintain are kind of, like, silly and old school. It's mm. all just, like, cheesy. But when you hear him talk about, like, he's written a lot of pieces that, defend the community and stand up for it but then he also says a lot of things that do kind of like dismiss religion mm. which is his opinion that's cool but it, mm. i did feel like oh people mm. watching this mm-hmm. i don't know yeah i think he more less so about islam and just about like faith in general mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was this idea of like as long as you're a good person it's cool uh-huh. which is super popular right yeah, now right right yeah um did you see the hassan minhaj thing not yet okay um, that I saw, that I like quite a bit, but it's a brown guy and I'm a brown guy. And so, uh, yeah, I, uh, there's definitely a lot of jokes that would be lost mm-hmm. in a lot of the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I appreciated about his comedy is that the message that he's giving, especially to, to brown people, is that this is me uh, with all of the wonderful and inconsistent and, and bad things. And I'm one of you and I'm not giving this up. Right, mm-hmm. so the message came across is that I'm on your team, right, and I'm not mm-hmm. leaving the fact that I'm on your team, because sometimes, I mean, when someone hits it big, there's a concern of yeah. you know, throwing everybody under the bus. That I don't think came across at all. Even I listen to like a lot of podcasts where he's been a guest, 
And I've always really liked how he's answered questions about stuff like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. All right, let's continue. From the Ibn Arabi is here. Yeah. Ibn Arabi is here taking the Quranic verse, Your Lord has determined that you will not worship him other than he. To mean not that God has commanded that nothing be worshipped other than him, the intuitive reading in common Muslim creed, but rather that God has established as an accomplished fact that any act of worship is necessarily directed to him alone. And thus, in every aspect of worship, including idolatry, the very practice to the eradication of which the Prophet Muhammad had devoted himself, peace be upon him, there is an aspect of God. So what do you think about that? I don't have an issue with like ideas like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe almost to a fault mm -hmm. from like a convert perspective, being like open to things. I mean, there might be like different meaning here. So to me, like that makes sense that mm -hmm. no matter like you're living in God's creation, so mm -hmm. there's gonna be like some some inherent piece of that in whatever you do. But I can see why people would have like an uncomfortable reaction. Yeah, I mean. So, this is why, like, Ibn Arabi is advanced material. If someone starts with Ibn Arabi, a lot of times, either they'll just outright reject it, or they'll say, this is just perfect, this is great. Mm -hmm. But um, the framing of Ibn Arabi in the overall tradition, as I understand it, is that he's, um, what he's sharing is much more advanced, that you have to establish some foundations to then appreciate him. So, okay, let's continue. By this profoundly counterintuitive and destabilizing reading of the text of Revelation, summed up in the well-known Persian slogan, Hamaust, all is he, Ibn Arabi is able to take an indulgent view of the Quranic presentation of the Prophet Harun Aaron's, peace be upon him, bootless attempt to prevent the Banu Israel, children of Israel, from worshipping the golden calf, for which his elder brother, Musa, or Moses, peace be upon him, had soundly berated him. The incapacity of Harun to restrain the followers of the calf was a wisdom from God made manifest in existence that he be worshipped in every form. So, when, uh, whenever we see prophets coming in pairs, so this is Musa and Harun, and for example, Isa and Yahya, um, uh, a way that this is commonly understood is that one of the two prophets is more of the law, and the other one is more the spirituality. Mm -hmm. so, so Jesus is more the spirituality. John, uh, the Baptist, peace be upon them all, is more the law. And so here Moses is more the law, and his brother Harun is more of the spirituality. Mm -hmm. So Moses, speaking from his, uh, his approach, yeah, what they're doing is, 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 is blasphemy. And then so Ibn Arabi is saying here from from Harun's approach, which was the spirituality approach, um, he's trying to get them to worship God um, directly, mm -hmm. but they were still worshiping God. Right? In Ibn Arabi's language. So. Mm. And, and a way to think about this is that Ibn Arabi is positioning, it in, uh, positioning the whole conversation in the heart of the person as opposed to what is it that they're directed at. Yeah. Right? And so in the heart of the person, they're worshiping God. Um, they just may not realize that they're missing out on the grandeur of God. So, make sense? Yeah, I feel like you see like smaller examples of that. People who don't necessarily have like 
a faith or religion when like they have to take a test or something like clearly they're praying Mm -hmm. (laughs) but they just aren't necessarily like mentally directing it towards what we'd understand as god Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. true okay let's continue Another notorious instance of Ibn Arabi's counterintuitive reading in his treatment of heaven and hell. Though Ibn Arabi speaks of hell and heaven with utmost interest and in accordance with the central explication of traditional eschatology, he finds a number of occasions to introduce a spiritual explanation for them. The basis for this is that adab, punishment or torment, is derived, according to his unconventional etymology, from... Uduba, sweetness, and this is taken to imply that the torment of the disobedient and the hereafter will be acceptable and void of physical pain. Mm-hmm. So think about that. So he's saying you'll be able to handle hell, and it will not have physical pain. What does that mean? So essentially it, it will mean that uh, heaven will be closeness to God and hell will be distance from God. And so think of the feeling of loneliness. Mm. Uh, so hell will be a very, very all-consuming loneliness. And think of the, the, the feeling of companionship. Heaven will be an all-consuming feeling of companionship. Right. What do you think? I think people who felt that loneliness can see how that's just as terrifying as like a physical mm-hmm. depiction of like, torment mm-hmm. but it's it's interesting I feel like we've been given such a vivid mm-hmm. image of what hell is like it's hard to imagine that mm-hmm. I imagine it as being both mm-hmm. so yeah I mean a lot of people won't have issues with it being both right um, and that, the question becomes, are those passages metaphor or are those passages literal? Mm-hmm. So the majority opinion is that those are literal. Um, even way the prophet, peace be upon him, himself describes it. Um, yeah. But is it metaphor? And then he gives his proofs based on language and such. Um, and one of the strange things about Arabic is that you'll have a root, and then a variation of that root will mean the opposite. So avab is punishment or torment, but uduba is sweetness. And and so sometimes people try to derive meaning through those relationships, mm-hmm. right? And so so then hell would be the complete uh, absence of sweetness, and that thus becomes torment. Mm. All right. <laughs> the relativism implicit in Ibn Arabi's cosmology was recognized not only by the numerous Muslim scholars who condemned him down the centuries. Barbidly renaming him El Sheikh Al Afar, <laughs> oh, the most unbelieving Sheikh, while lamenting and actively combating his social influence, but also by those who accepted the validity of his Sufi experience, such as the 17th century Indian Sufi reformer and self styled renovator of the second millennium. Ahmed Sirhindi? Yeah. Sirhindi noted matter of factly of Ibn Arabi that he thus. Averse the unity of being and deems the existence of the possibles to be identical with the existence of the necessary one, the exalted, the sanctified, and that evil and deficiency are relative and denies the existence of pure evil and absolute deficiency. From this position, he denies that anything is evil in essence, to the point that he considers unbelief and going astray to be evil only relative to faith and to being rightly guided, and not in their respective essences. 
for he considers them the same in essence as goodness and right-guidedness. Okay, so I'll try to translate that quote. It seems kind of like the uh, the above pair or two paragraphs above where it's saying the the torment or like those things are only defined in their distance from God. Yeah, exactly. That it's that doesn't seem too out of line with like yeah. things we've talked about in class in terms of like good and evil. Uh, yeah, and so so if Allah created everything, then by definition there can't be something that is absolutely devoid of good, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, and so that which is hell will be that which has the least amount of good, and then that which is heaven, like belief, is that which has the most amount of good. There was a word that you defined in Faith Foundations that like meant something like distance from, or... It's like, a, it's a super obvious word, like evil... Oh, probably shar. Shar? So, yeah, shar is often translated as evil, but literally it means deprivation. Okay. So in this context, a deprivation of good. Okay. Continue. Hindi, fearing precisely that Ibn Arabi's cosmology might lead common uninitiated people to heresy and neglect of the Sharia, sought to domesticate unbounded Sufi experience of the unseen within the parameters of legal regulation of the seen producing a Sufism that subordinates its epistemological claims to real truth to the final arbiting authority of the epistemology and truth of legal discourse. So in simple language, he's trying to frame it. He's saying basically, if people don't know how to digest Ibn Arabi, it's going to mess them up. Mm-hmm. And, and so he is trying to position Ibn Arabi within the Sharia, that you start from the Sharia and then you grow in terms of the Sawaf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sirhindi inspired an important global Sufi reform movement with that goal headquartered in the Sufi order that has ever since borne his imprimatur, the Mujahidiyya Naqshbandiyya, and that has enjoyed considerable historical success in promulgating its legally subordinate concept of Sufism as the dominant notion of Sufism in modern Islam. Yeah, so the Naqshbandis come along, and they are, trying, uh, they are becoming essentially the orthodox Sufis, which means that they keep things within the bounds of mm-hmm. Islamic law. When he was writing this book, was this for, like, just of his own, or, like, for research in, like, an institution? So this, this book seems to be addressed to academic scholars of Islam, mm-hmm in trying to figure out what is Islam, what isn't. I mean, that's been one of the questions as of late. Um, because part of the problem is trying to figure out, okay, what about at the edges? What is Islam, what isn't? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you have a mosque built by, built by and designed by a non-Muslim, we'd probably still say that's Islamic. But then if you have the Sears Tower, which is designed by a Muslim, and perhaps mm-hmm. even an act of worship for that Muslim, then we'd still probably say that's not Islamic. And so, like, what is, what isn't? So who's his audience, or his intended audience? I think it's academics and Islamic studies. Yeah. Academics who have a tradition, because even if they're an academic, I mean, some of these things are, you're not going to be able to understand just mm-hmm. through an academic lens. Yeah, probably not. Like you need um, like a balance. I mean, I think um, the people, uh, this also is a good book for people who position themselves in the tradition. I think it's really good for them to read, mm. you know in raising some of these questions and stretching out our definition of what Islam is, mm-hmm. looking at history. Because right now, the sense that Islam is, is you know, the establishment of Islamic law in yourself 
perhaps in society, but definitely within yourself, and then perhaps growing in a spirituality beyond that. Mm-hmm. But he's saying there's been these populations of people who self-identify as religious Muslims, mm-hmm. you know, who have a completely, completely different approach. You know? I think that's good for, for a lot of Muslims to, to learn about. Yeah. I think it'll open up a lot of minds. The common goal of the respective projects of Hikmat al-Ishraq and Wahdat al-Wujud has been experiential knowledge of the higher truth of existence, as distinct from the lower truths of life. Fazlur Rahman, probably the finest modern student of Islamic intellectual history, as well as the Muslim modernist reformist thinker to confront most squarely the inconveniences presented by that history, recognized the foundational and infrastructural influence of the received discourses of Islamic philosophy on the Thank you. An Akbarian trajectory of ideas. And coined for this trajectory the forensic phrase philosophic religion. He also recognized the central and seminal place of the sorry. Sohrawardian. Sohrawardian, an Akbarian philosophic religion in the subsequent histories of societies of Muslims and noted unhappily this trend of thought profoundly influenced the whole subsequent development of metaphysical thought in Islam, both Sufic and philosophical. Its importance and depth cannot be overestimated. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so, so Fazl Rahman, he's from your school, and, and he was a teacher at UFC. Oh, really? Yeah, he dies like in the late 80s, lived in Naperville, and, um, and so he was a, a big giant in, in Islamic studies. And so he is basically uh, trying to put all these things together. And so he has this idea of the philosophic religion. Um, so you got the Sufis, which are very experiential, mm-hmm. and then you have the philosophers that are focused more on trying to make sense of it all. And so these all become different universes of, of Islam. What would be an example right now that does both? I mean, there's people who I think are intentionally or unintentionally aspiring to that. Um, but they do also position themselves. So Tarak Ramadan kind of is aspiring to that, but uh, Fazl Rahman is very conscious, or not, I mean, Tarak Ramadan is very consciously focused on revival. Mm -hmm. Um, um, uh, Ibrahim Musa, I think, uh, is sort of an intellectual descendant of Fazl Rahman, um, still early in his career developing his ideas. Um, Some people, there's an Iranian thinker that some people uh, connect with this. His name is Abdul Karim Saroush. Okay. And whatever I read of him, I haven't read in a long, long time. But, yeah, Fazal Rahman is often looked at as being in a class by himself. Yeah. Rahman's fundamental and insufficiently recognized historical point is that the Sufi and philosophical claim to a real truth, Hakika, that lay above and beyond the truth of the revealed law, Sharia, was not a bit of intellectual or esotericist social marginalia. Mm-hmm but was effectively the manifesto of a wide-ranging social and cultural phenomenon that Rahman called a religion not only within religion, but above religion. Mm. We might profitably characterize this religion not only within religion, but above religion, as a Sufi philosophical or philosophical Sufi amalgam. So a key point here is this is not people who are on the margins, right? This was widespread. And as you travel through India, you see a lot of this still present. And even, I mean, this is sort of a side point, but like if you look at the shops in Tavan Avenue, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of them are reflections of that. So Sabri Nahari is mm-hmm. the Sabri Chisti Sufi order. Really? Yeah. Um, what else is there? 
So the Hura, those are the Bligimont. Um, yeah, Harib Nawaz, and so my students uh, here are part of the Harib Nawaz family. That's its own. Harib Nawaz was the name given to, again, Chisti, who is this mm-hmm. uh, major figure in Indian Islam. And so when all these people came to America, and then they're opening shops, they're opening shops related to their, uh, their traditions. When you say, like, how does that manifest and how they run a shop? Meaning it's uh, like a, so like, the different Sufi um, communities in the subcontinent, for example, they focus very heavily on feeding people and serving people. Mm-hmm. And so Karim Nawaz, the food is very cheap, oh. right? Uh, and one of the, the big dishes of the Sabri order is, is Nihari, hence Sabri Nihari. Right? Like that's what oh. they used to feed the poor, right? And it's not necessarily even the case that someone thought, we must make this Islam over here like that. No, it's like that's what their culture is. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty neat stuff. Do you feel like the generation of students that you work with know this about their families? Like, nope. I, I think a lot about that, just like the two sides of culturally where my family comes from, and mm. one is very much like storytelling and passing mm. them down, almost like Jewish-Polish, mm. like always telling stories to the point where you don't want to hear them. Mm-hmm. Like, why do you think... I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the effect of some of these reformist movements, you know, um, who were trying to revive Islam and the Muslims by getting everyone back to the Quran and stuff, but in the process they also wiped out a lot of this history from people's minds. I think that's part of it. Is um, that for like, just like colonialist influence? So, so a lot of the, the, the Muslim revival uh, movement is response to colonialism. And, and so, um, so like uh, determining where the problems are, a lot of it, a lot of times reformist movements become Puritan and mm-hmm. saying all these things, if we can't justify through text, then it's an innovation and it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's part of it. And I think just a simple act of migration yeah. You know, when you migrate, um, you're leaving a whole lot of things behind and you don't know what is important to keep, what isn't. Yeah. It's just what you feel like you need to do in these different parts of the year. You know? I think a lot of it, like we're in a global era of migration, so we forget a lot of the yeah. history. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Mainstream scholarship in the 21st century seems now, at long last, to have begun to recognize in regard to the Sufi philosophical amalgam that its ideas, though fantastically complex, were nonetheless remarkably popular and percolated widely through the population. Yet, in my own experience of the community of scholars, and even more so in the community of educated modern Muslim laypersons, there is still much resistance to that recognition. And when it comes to thinking about the consequences of this percolation for the task of conceptualizing Islam as a human and historical phenomenon, far from overestimating the historical presence, persistence, and influence of Sufi philosophical Islam, the dominant tendency is still to very much underestimate. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that the great majority of Muslims have in their lineage or in their ancestry a very large presence of Sufis. Um, yeah. Um, but a lot of that is forgotten. I noticed that when talking to my friends' parents, like, mm. they will bring that up, and then my friends are like, what? Like, we yeah. have Sufi yeah. heritage? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's... Uh, those guys were, were the, the caretakers of, of a lot of Islam for, for a whole lot, uh, a lot, uh, a lot of our history. Um, especially when there's a shift away from power um, and, and um, the people. So when you have a king, the kings often separate from the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, thinking more about your question, another reason is that with a modern nation state, 
you know, the nation becomes your real family. Okay? Mm-hmm. Like they call the term fatherland. Mm-hmm. And so then the nation will determine what is your Islam, right? And so then the Sufis get sidelined, you know, to being inside people's homes or something like that, right? And part of it is that the Sufis themselves have not caught up to, to the changes in, in society and modernity and stuff. They haven't provided an answer. So my only experience with Sufis in this area have been with, like, the Shadhili community, which okay. is heavily Syrian. Uh-huh. It seems there were a lot of Desi people there, too, but uh-huh. mostly it was, like, very wealthy uh-huh. um, inside people's homes. Uh-huh. They were doing, like, a lot of service, but I always was like, I don't belong here. This oh, really? is, like, my status is not high enough to be here. You socioeconomic status? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or just, like, family background stuff. I'm uh-huh. like, oh, no. Um... And then I haven't spent much time, but I know that they've been present at like Masjid al Huda. There's like. Mm-hmm. There's other group in Naqshbandi's there, yeah. Yeah, they're always like um, like singing or reciting something, uh-huh. but then a bunch of the Masjid will like leave when that's happening. Yeah, yeah. How do those, like that Sufi community and like these other ones look at each other? I mean, the same way as the, the schools of law look at each other. Okay. So in theory, that we're all legit, we're all part of the same family, you know. Um, or think of them as different schools of martial arts. Mm-hmm. So there are some schools of martial arts that are like the hard styles, some of the soft styles. Yeah. And so that's how it is with, with the different Sufi um, tariqas. Mm-hmm. But uh, officially, at least, the Sufi tariqas look at all each other as being part of the same family, mm-hmm. right? That they all, what binds them together is their connection to the Prophet, peace be upon him. Yeah. But they all have different methods. And, I mean, most of them are not even that old. They're like 500 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah, 800 years old. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's stop here, because I actually have to run to Juma. And so this oh. is page 30, and then we'll be starting. You have it on page 30 in your thing? Yeah. And then we'll uh, start with the fourth question next time. All right, subhanakallahumma